Hey, what's up? Welcome to another edition of the Canvas Podcast. I am your host, Joey Uribe, and today I'm coming to you live from within the walls of the Art Institute, located in Santa Ana, California. And today, what I'd like to start off with is asking you guys to share my podcast as much as possible. I've been putting up on Facebook. I'm trying to branch out to other social media websites where I can spread the message of the Canvas Podcast. I'm hoping to have more artists come on, not only locally here in Orange County, but artists from L.A., the Inland Empire, San Diego as well. I want to say I have the pleasure of sitting down with Mr. Scott Esman. How are you doing today, Scott? Good. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Thank you. And Scott, before we move on, I want to first say thank you for taking the time to come on here and sharing the knowledge that you have for all our listeners out there, man. I genuinely appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. I'm happy to do it. So as you know, Scott educates all our students here when it comes to the film department one way or another some of the film majors so he's very important I had the pleasure in my first quarter of taking the survey digital film and he's a cool guy man he's very down to earth and today we're going to dip into his world we're going to pick his brain a little bit and we're going to talk about the background and where Mr. Scott Esmond comes from so Scott if you can do me a favor and just introduce yourself for the people who don't know you well, I'm a full-time instructor in the digital filmmaking department. I actually started the department with Rich Jansen. He and I were the only two teachers when the department first started in summer 2010. So it was like me and him. And we taught everybody in the first group of students. There were 12 students that summer. And almost all of them have graduated and gone on to do cool things. A couple are still uh, either trying to graduate or not yet ready. But uh, most of our our students are doing really nicely, so it was fun to see the program start at the very beginning, and now here it is five years yet later, and it's grown quite yeah, a bit. It's evolved pretty big here, from what I hear from other uh, film majors here. Yeah. So, Scott, let's dip into your background and your education. Um, let's talk about where you studied and where your love for film sparked. Well, I was born in a place called Long Island, which is a suburb of New York City, and my we lived actually in the city for a couple of years until my parents moved back out to the island when I was about two. So I grew up in the suburbs. It's a lot like Orange County. So it's the way Orange County is suburban to L.A., the city. Long Island is suburban to New York, the city, you know. So what do you do out in the suburbs? Well, you hang out with your friends, you play. We had a lot of parks and space to play. And then what else do you do when you get a little older? You go to the movies. It's like there's movies, there's restaurants, and bowling alleys and roller skating rinks, and miniature golf courses in the summer. (laughs) And there's not that much else going on in the suburbs, so I spent a lot of time at the movies. I remember going to movies on Saturday quite a lot, matinees back then, you know, before you can drive. You go to a matinee with your parents or whatever, and then eventually night movies. So I grew up with a a real strong love for movies, and then eventually watching movies on TV. And then when I was about 11, VHS came out in 1977. (gasps) You could tape a movie that's on TV and have it forever. So believe it or not, I still have some VHS tapes from when VHS first came out in 77. And I taped movies off of TV because it was easy to do it. But we didn't have cable TV then. So there were like three local stations in New York and three networks. And that's it. Oh, and PBS. And PBS. (laughs) That's it, man. And then VHS. Sorry. UHF. Because VHF was the networks and the local stations. UHF was, you know, all these other bizarre channels, but those didn't come in very clearly because it was all through antenna back then. But, you know, some of that was fun. It's like now you can get anything. You can push a button now on Netflix and watch almost any movie or most any TV show. And it's like 
when I was growing up as a kid, interested in all this stuff, not only couldn't you do that, but you'd wake up early on Sunday to go to the newspaper and pull out the TV schedule. And you'd pour through that like you're reading the Bible. And you'd find when the certain movies would come on for that week, and you'd plan your week around that. That's Isn't that bizarre? It is. And it's like, oh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. Oh, cool. Well, I'm up early enough. I'm going to watch it. Or, you know, in New York City, we have the 4.30 movie in the late 70s, early 80s. The 4.30 movie would start at 4.30, and it would go till 6 when your mother would call you for dinner. So it was perfect. It's like 4.36. And then I'm thinking back going, man, they showed a movie from 4.30 to 6. That's a 90-minute slot plus commercials. They must have edited those movies to death. So commercials commercials were also involved in when they would show the movies? Absolutely. Oh, of course, because that's how they made all their money is showing commercials during movies. I mean, they'd show you a movie, and then there'd be all this time with a commercial that there's no movie. And then the movie would come back, and then 20 minutes later, there'd be a commercial. Probably more like 10 minutes later. But, you know, 90 minutes plus commercials. We must have had, like, a 70-minute movie, you know, with 20 minutes of commercials. 70 minutes is an hour and 10 minutes. They must have cut down those movies to the nub. It's like I'm thinking back right. going, how, how did they fit, you know, for 90 minute, <laughs> a 90-minute section? How did they fit a full yeah. two-hour movie in? They cut a lot of stuff out. But, you know, back then you didn't care. You're a kid. You just think it's fun. But right. it's a totally different world. So I've seen a lot of changes, not only VHS uh, and, and cable TV, but clearly the Internet. It's right. like it's changed everything. But cable TV, when it finally came out, that helped my childhood along because now you did have more choices and you could see more movies. You didn't have to wait to see what was playing on your TV schedule. Right. You could see a movie on HBO or later on Showtime or Cinemax or whatever. It's like these early stations for a movie lover. It was awesome. And that was my childhood. It's like, you know, I played with my friends. I was an athletic kid. I played football and we played baseball and stuff like that, hockey, but uh, a little basketball. But uh, I saw lots of movies and watched lots of TV growing up, especially in the winter where it's too cold really to do anything outside. You could play football in the snow, which we do once in a while. But, you know, five months of the year, it's really too cold to go outside for very long. Right. So you come in, okay, what are you going to do inside? Well, after a while, you get sick of playing pool or playing ping pong, and you just want to settle in and watch TV. So I watched, I watched thousands of movies in my childhood growing up, and TV too. But TV shows and TV series and programs were never as interesting to me as the movies. To me, a two-hour movie, it's a complete experience. You're done. You fulfilled it. Okay, you're, that's it. Maybe there's a sequel. Sequels are never usually as good. Once in a while, we get good yeah. sequels. Typically, sequels are just more of the same. It's not as good as the original. So you'd watch a two-hour movie, you'd get the full experience, and you're done, and that's it. That was always, to me, that was my cup of tea more than a TV show, where every week you get a new hour of stuff, and it's you know goes on and on and on. Certainly, some TV shows have been great, no doubt about that. It's just, it was never my cup of tea. I always liked just the two-hour movie, and I haven't changed. It's like... Here it is 40 years later. My taste is pretty much the same. Now let me ask you this, Scott. Um, you studied at USC, and in, um, in your, back in your early days with USC, you know, I just want to throw this in here. You've, you've taken a class from Jay Roach, and for the people who don't know Jay Roach, he directed such movies as Austin Powers um, and Meet the Parents. He's also produced movies like Borat, Bruno, 
50 First Dates. Can you kind of elaborate on that, how that was back then? Being at USC in the 80s was really cool, even if we didn't always know it at the time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Sometimes you don't know when it's happening, the value of an experience okay. until later. And then you look back and you go, you know what? That was pretty cool. It's like when you're going through something, you know, you have classes and you have tests and you have things to go to and, you know, duties to meet and you're going to get a grade. So you don't want to always know, oh, this is cool, you know, while it's happening. You don't always reflect that way. And then you look back and you go, man, my camera teacher was Jay Roach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's teaching us stuff like, you know, depth of field and teaching us about long lenses and having us shoot in the studio at USC on the soundstage, shoot little films. You know, he's just like, do do a film in five shots or whatever. You know, little little things like that. And, and uh, he was super nice. Jay was a good guy. He was very much so about us. He mm-hmm. was very student-oriented. And he was he wanted to get us the knowledge that we needed to work in the industry. But he was always very polite. I remember that. It's like he was always like, Okay, your five shot films are due today and then he'd go, Please. <laughs> it's like a nice guy. He was not a dictator at all. Cool man. So I don't know what his set I've never been on a set where he's been the director, but I would imagine he was so, he would he would be soft spoken and he would be polite and courteous and just a nice person to to get along with, you know. And then, yeah, sure enough, he bounced around a little. And then when he directed that first Austin Powers movie um, in 97, I believe, boom, it, all of a sudden, one of our own hit the jackpot. But that wasn't the only guy because at USC at the same time, actually in one of my classes, there was a horror director named Christian Ottjen, O-T-J-E-N. And Christian Ottjen went on to direct movies too. He was a student in that same Jay Roach class. Mm-hmm which was spring of 1987. Wow. <laughs> but um, we wait online to get into the movies at USC. How does that work? Well, the movies are classes. So when you watch different movies at USC, it's a class where they watch the movie and discuss it. It's a, whole, it's a full class. So you wait online to get in because everyone's trying to get into the movies. So they let in the people who are in the class first. Then they let in all the other cinema students and then all the other faculty members. And then on the very last line is everybody else. And you could be anybody. You could be a student on campus. It could be a student from another school. But you have to wait on the fourth line. Yes. Well, fall of 86, me and another guy are on that fourth line all the time, like that whole quarter. In that, in that school, it's a semester, but fall, right, mm-hmm. of 86. And his name was Brian Singer. And Brian Singer knocked around for years and years after that until 1995 and he made a movie called The Usual Suspects and The Usual Suspects won two Oscars so there's another guy you know he's just pooping around on campus trying to do stuff like everyone else waiting on the fourth line like me (laughs) so he and I are waiting together and we're watching the movies and we're talking about it and sure enough this dude ten years later makes The Usual Suspects the movie wins two Oscars Kevin Spacey won for Best Supporting Actor and Best Screenplay, Christopher McQuarrie for Usual Suspects. So this little movie by this no-name guy wins two Academy Awards. That's pretty cool. And the truth is, the rest of his career has been informed by the success of that movie. In other words, that was such a huge critical success. I don't know if it made that much money. But in terms of critical success, huge, off the charts, considered one of the best movies of the year and... Some people think it's some of the best uh, work done in the 90s and that whole decade. 
And then, of course, Brian Singer went on to do the first X-Men film, and then he came back and did the second X-Men film, but then he didn't do a bunch of the sequels. But then he did the, not the one that's coming out, but the last one that came out. I don't even remember. It was X-Men First Class. But the one, the one just before the one that's now being uh, released yeah. soon. He did that. He came back to do that one. He directed Superman Returns with Brandon Ruth as mm-hmm. Superman and Kevin Spacey yeah. as, as Lex Luthor. And he directed um, J- Jack the Giant Slayer and a whole bunch of other stuff. Valkyrie with Tom Cruise. So he's like a major Hollywood director now. Right. He's in play. When you put a movie together, Brian Singer is one of the guys mentioned to direct your movie. So it's like he started out there. Um, there would be comedy shows on campus at USC in the 80s, right? Where we'd get a stand-up comedian from Hollywood to come to campus and do a show and get a check and then go back to the comedy clubs, you know, and do more shows. Now, you used to do uh, some stand-up back in the day, right? And then I believe uh, the person who was running that at the time was Judd Apatow. Judd Apatow ran the comedy shows. So he was a stand-up comedian, right? Mm -hmm. But he was also a student at USC in the 80s. And... um, Yes, he would organize the stand-ups. He would hire them from Hollywood to come to campus and do their shows. But he would also go on stage as a little warm-up to the main comedian. So Judd would come out and he would do maybe five to ten minutes of stuff. And then he'd say, okay, I'm going to introduce Charles Fleischer. And Fleischer would come out and do like a full hour-long set. But Judd Apatow definitely um, started off as a stand-up and made his mark at USC and then, of course, it's like the same thing. Time goes by, and then you don't hear from these guys. And then the 90s come around, and it's like, ooh, I see Judd Apatow's name on the movie Celtic Pride. Yeah. Wow, how did you get that? Cool, he's a screenwriter. And then, of course, later on, he became as big a name as Jay Roach and as Brian Singer, because now he's a major writer, director, producer. He still does stand-up comedy. On um, Jimmy Fallon's show, The Tonight Show, he came out, and he did like 10 minutes of stand-up comedy material. Cool. And it's like, he doesn't need to do that. The dude's a major writer, director, producer now. But Judd Apatow was the guy who did the comedy competitions. Now, was I totally in that milieu then? No. But I did do a comedy um, stand-up routine, uh, Spring of 88, and another one of those Judd Apatow things. And for some reason, they let students do it back then. So anyone could go on stage. And I went on stage, and I did maybe like 15 minutes of material. And it went pretty well, but yeah. I never really pursued it. You know, I kind of let it drop off. But cool. it did go pretty well. And I remember Steve Heitner was the comedian from the industry who came to host that event. But Judd Apatow set all that stuff up. And, you know, you would see Judd at different cafes and stuff around campus. And I would talk to him. And I knew Singer very well. Brian Singer was in my car driving to an event at one point. And there were other people at that time who were a big deal. It's like other members of the USC student body Mm -hmm. became other important people through the way. For instance, one of the guys who drew the cartoons um, in the student newspaper is now like a major cartoon and animation creator at Disney Channel. And another guy who drew cartoons, but they were very satiric, is now a major news anchor on Channel 4, Gordon Tokumatsu. The other guy was Dan Pavenmeyer. But Dan Poffenmeyer had this ongoing cartoon in the student newspaper called Life is a Fish. And he has this character of Herman who was a fish, and he would sort of kind of look at the world through slanted eyes. And then um, Gordon Tokomatsu. Gordon Tokomatsu 
had a comic strip that made fun of fraternity boys, mm-hmm. and it was called Yad Dude. And it was very funny. And Gordon Tokamatsu is now a major news anchor for Channel 4 here in L.A., yeah. which, you know, that's hard to do. To get on the news period is hard, but to be a major anchor ongoing for many, many years, difficult. Yeah. So these were all USC guys in the 80s. At the time, did you know that this guy's going to the news, that guy's no, going to Disney not. Channel, that guy's going to be Judd Apatow, that guy's going to be Brian Singer? Of course not. They're just dudes pooping around campus, hanging out, just doing the same stuff you are. But those, this, is, this is the vibe we had at USC in the 80s. It was a cool time to be there, and there were a lot of creative people. All right, Scott, so another thing I want to talk to you about is a Visionary Cinema a production company that you established back in the late 80s. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Okay, so let's hear more about that. Well, when I graduated from USC, the whole thing was, all right, I want to get my career going. How do I do that? Well, I made a mistake, which is I sort of thought things will be easier in New York than in L.A., even though I was here, you know, from USC. So I went back home, put stuff in storage, Gave my car to a cousin of mine, second cousin, and went back to New York. Struggled along to find work, especially good work. But at a certain point, I formed my company. Kind of had a vision that <laughs> came to me. Formed a production company. This is in 88, and I formed it in 89. It was called Visionary Cinema. And at first, the whole idea was, let's put a production company together. I'll get a bunch of writers together, and we'll have like a think tank of creative ideas. And it went well. We actually... You know, got some good ideas, and we got a producer to come in to meet with us, and we got some scripts out there and stuff like that. It's just whenever those financial problems come in, which they inevitably do, what happens? Those kind of things start breaking apart. You know, someone goes and gets a job, and they leave the group, and someone else decides to do another thing. So it's like the groups. There's always a vision for the group, and there's always a a purpose for the group. But the problem is, you know, in a capitalistic economy, you know, we don't do charity work all that much unless you have a 501c3 charity legal thing where it's a not-for-profit and then you could start doing stuff but you still have money coming in so we had no money coming in at all i ended up moving back here and i reformed visionary and started putting projects together in the 90s and one of the cool things i did was i found out that people had not really covered makeup artists and creature creators that much it's like this is before dvd and on VHSs, you didn't see that much of them. On cable TV, you didn't see a lot. In magazines, yeah, you saw some, but it wasn't an abundance of it. Makeup artistry hadn't been saturated in the market by far. So I decided, yeah, I should do some projects with that. And I started literally cold calling people out of a book I found. This is before the internet. So I found a book that had contact info for all these makeup people. It was called The Special Effects and Stunts Guide. Nowadays, you would never need to get a book. You go on the internet, you look people up, there's IMDB, all this stuff. Back then, you had to get a book. And I didn't even have the book. It's like I had to ask my library to get it from another library. (laughs) It was called an interlibrary loan. These days, you pick up your phone and you talk into it and say, contact info for, and you put the name and then they'll see what they can do. But anyway, so I found contact info from this special effects and stunts guide. And I literally started cold calling people saying, I'd like to interview you because I'm putting together a project. It's going to be a book, but it's going to also be a documentary. And I called the whole thing Creature People. Originally, I said Creature Feature because it's a, you know, a movie about creatures. But then I thought, it's about the people. It's not about the work. These people are interesting who do this work. And the work is certainly a part of it, but it's more about the artist who creates the work. It's about the artist. It's about the person. And Creature People became this whole thing. It's like we did a a huge documentary 
about a creature film in 96 called Wolvie. And my documentary was called, very simply, Making Wolvie. And I did this in 96. I didn't get paid for it. I just put it together as, as a sort of a tribute film. But it got me work because people saw it and said, oh, this is cool. And I got hired to do demo reels for creature artists. And I got other documentary work. And I had, for a while, had a manager representing me. And then I started to branch out and do live events. So I did tributes to different makeup people in the late 90s. And that was kind of fun because they hadn't been widely recognized at that time. I mean, they're even to this day with... with internet and with social media and all that there's a little bit of work on directors and there's a little bit of interviews with directors and stuff like that but it's almost all about celebrity and movie stars and gossip and all this other stuff well I was never interested in any of that to me it was boring it's like I'd much rather talk to a director than an actor because the director is on the set making the thing happen the actor is interpreting it right and they're interesting to a certain point but I really run out of things to say to actors after a certain point where for a director you sit me down with a director we could go for three hours on the making of just one movie and talk about it and kind of come up with interesting things. So focusing on makeup people, it's like no one else is doing this. Not a lot of people cared. But we did really interesting events in the 90s, and I eventually put together the Creature People DVD, and we did like a Wizard of Oz tribute, and we did a Planet of the Apes tribute, and we did all this cool stuff. So that really put me on the map. It's like because not a lot of people were choosing to cover makeup arts, I kind of slipped in, you know what I mean? Yeah kind of through the cracks because that stuff does fall through the cracks if there's not a major actor involved do people lose out now what's funny is I got some major actors involved in my efforts because they liked their makeup people you see so when I was doing a tribute to a guy named John Chambers who had done the Planet of the Apes Roddy McDowell came down and he had been in several of the Planet of the Apes films and that was kind of cool he was there and I talked to him on the phone and he came to my event and he spoke and it was really cool to have him there. And Martin Landau had also interacted with um, John Chambers. So he showed up, and I didn't even know he was coming. And he said, oh, I didn't tell you I was coming because I didn't know if I could make it or not until to the last minute. But he showed up, and he spoke, and everything was cool. So it was like some fun stuff was happening, you know. And I was really young back then. I was still in my 20s, and I was sort of just endeavoring to do all this work. But to do it at a level that paid ultimate respect to these artists. It wasn't cheesy. It wasn't exploitative. And it also wasn't opportunism. You right. see, the whole thing was about trying to do some projects that really represented these people well. And that was some of the first visionary things I did. That went on for a long time. It really started in like 95, which is 20 years ago now. And it went on. I did those projects really for like 10 years. I worked on different aspects of those projects including I put out a book called Creature People about these artists and I did a a video called Creature People so it's like all this stuff happened and these live events kind of led to other things because people started to see them and they took an interest so it was a good idea it put me on the map Monsters old monster flicks it's always been something that you've been a fan of growing up as a kid also yes I was always fascinated by things that you didn't see in normal life not only monsters and horror, but science fiction and time travel and all these kind of subjects that were supernatural. It's not something you would ever see in normal everyday life. That was fascinated me. So I remember back in the early years, you know, watching TV and movies and stuff, but anything that was odd or somehow different or unusual was always interesting to me. And I think the reason for that is 
the suburban living situation was very ordinary. Yeah. House, backyard, children, the school bus takes you to the school. It was like very cookie cutter. Yeah. Every house looked pretty similar. You know what I mean? Yeah. So something out of the ordinary, smack in the middle of the suburbs like that, to me, was fascinating. Yeah. It's like, wow, this is different. And it was it was unique and interesting for a young person who was already a little different than everyone else. Yeah. Like, you know, didn't quite fit in in this whole world. So for a young guy, I, I always took an interest. And I remember the very the first book that I got, which really crystallized my interest, was called Horrors from Screen to Scream. <laughs> and it was by a guy named Ed Naha. Mm -hmm. And I saw that book and immediately said, Hey, someone else out there like me, you know. Some guy gets the same stuff I get and thinks it's cool, also. And that book is to me the first book that really crystallized all this stuff in one book. And it came out in 1975, and I was eight, so I was like at the perfect age to take an interest in that stuff. When you're just sort of eight, you're not yet you're not a little boy anymore. At eight, you're becoming a younger person. Yeah, but you're out of severe boyhood. Now you're like in third grade. You're starting to branch out a little more and your interests start to expand. You have your own interests. You become your own little person at that age, you know? Absolutely. You and know I, what you and, like. Absolutely. And I took an interest in this stuff back then. And then you hit your teenage years. And what happens to all the stuff you liked as a kid when you become a teenager and you're trying to be cool? Immediately, all the stuff I liked when I was a kid, that's uncool. Yeah. It's like, that's kid stuff. So all the monster stuff, and the I still like movies, and stuff, of course, but all the monster stuff and the models that I had and the miniatures and the action figures and all that became very passe because now I was a teenager and I was trying to be cool. And to me, music took a hold of my life. It's like my number one interest was music, and I was fascinated by rock and roll bands and all that kind of stuff. And uh, all the stuff I liked as a kid was suddenly uncool but then what happens then you become an adult and now you're in your 20s and you're on your own right and what happens you go wait a minute that stuff I liked as a kid I still think that's cool now, now you're trying to find all that stuff again where's that book sure enough I found that book by Ed Naha it was still yeah. in my house my mother hadn't thrown it out even though I had been out of the house for years she had never thrown it out, thrown it out and it was sitting in my bookcase and lo and behold, I looked him up on Facebook, and now I'm Facebook friends with him. Wow. This guy who took my life into a certain direction. That must be crazy. Yeah. And I've looked up other people who I idolized back then, and we've become friendly. I don't want to say we're friends. Facebook friends is one thing. Friend friends, a few people, yes, I've become good friends with who I read about their work way back, 35, 40 years ago now. And we've become good friends. And it's almost surreal, you know, to be friends with someone that as a young boy you looked up to, it doesn't make sense. It's like, wait a minute, these people are like gods. They're not like my friend. <laughs> yeah. How could they be my friend? Yeah. But anyway, that stuff became something that I took an interest in again as an adult, even though there was that black hole of like, you know, age 13 to age 23, where none of that stuff was cool anymore. Now you're turning 23, 24. It's like, wait a minute. That stuff that I liked as a kid, that's cool. That stuff is cool. Yeah. And you try to revisit it and relive it and so forth. But, you know, I got to do that, which was, which was fun. 
in my later years yeah. being uh, after all that ended. Not later years as in senior years. Yeah. I'm not there yet, but <laughs> you know, my 20s and my 30s, I spent rekindling the imagination that I had as a boy and doing projects that involve those things. Right. And, you know, I can relate to that. And first off, I want to say if you guys are hearing a little static behind us, it's because keep in mind we are at the Art Institute. There are people walking back and forth. So I go, hope you guys listening out there don't mind too much. It's not really too much of a problem, but I just want to bring it to everybody's attention that we're well aware of it. But I can totally relate to what you're saying, man, because a lot of the stuff that I loved as a kid, I always find myself one way or another going back to it. It's, it's cool to say that, you know, for the most part, it happens to everybody, not just, you know, individuals out there. So you're not weird if you guys are listening to this. If, you know, if you guys are liking things from when you're a kid, by all means, man, enjoy it. Eat it up. By the time we start walking around and actually watching movies and television, we're probably about three, right? Yeah. By the time we literally, quote-unquote, get out of the house, we're done with high school, we're on to the next stage of life. We're about 18. That's a 15-year period from like 3 to 18 where you're so sensitive to the world and what's out there and what you see and what you hear and you're absorbing things and so forth. Now, I'm not saying this changes your behavior because that's a whole other discussion that's never been proven but it definitely forms you and it informs you because you're starting to become a certain kind of person with certain kind of interests in law. Yeah. But I, I subscribe to the fact that after 18, when you're an adult and you're living your life and all that, you never forget those 15 years oh, yeah. from 3 to 18 where you were growing up and you had certain interests. You never get over the things you loved. You never get over the things you saw and heard. You never get over the people you meet. And some people are constantly trying to outrun that period right and some people are constantly trying to relive the period it's two reactions some people like who have had traumatic experiences during that time are doing everything they can to distance themselves from it and escape from it and run from it and hide from it and then some people go back to it and revisit it and try to do it again because it was so important you know those 15 years when you're first growing up are so important it's like the rest of your life is spent somehow either as a reaction or as a, you know, kind of a affirmation of those 15 years. Isn't that strange? It is. 